Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have customer growth expert and the creator of the Scale Your Sales framework, Janice B. Gordon. Janice, thank you. Great to be here, Marcus. Excellent. It's lovely to have you. Uh, We've been old sparring partners for, what, about 10 years, longer? Yeah, I think so. It it feels longer. (laughs) (laughs) What does that say about me? It doesn't say anything about you. It just (laughs) says that time has flown so fast and I feel like I've had about seven lifetimes in the last yeah, 10 It sounded to me like you were saying, Janice, you're aging me. <laughs> well, there, there is always that. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't want to say it outright, but it, as you said it, well, why, why the hell not? So Janice, give us 60 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are. Yeah, well, I started selling designs in 1990, and that was my introduction into to sales. And then I went on to work in financial services for 10 years in the 1990s. And I always remember Tuesdays, we had to be there early, standing up, cold calling at eight in the morning and eight at night. I hated cold calling. But I so I got my sales training one thing that that taught me was know the stats in your business. And that leads into know the finances of your business or, or your functional area. And, you know, what I love about loved about sales was the relationships, really kind of getting deep with, with your customers and really understanding their businesses and their goals and all of that. And it, I thought it was a real honor. So I did my Cranfield MBA and finished in uh, 2002, along with Chartered Institute of Marketing. I worked with a construction uh, company, then went on to work with a, a customer experience consultancy. And actually, customer experience has been a major, has a major impact on me in the way I view sales and marketing, because I really understood that customers are your best innovators. Not only that, they if you remain close to them and it's really relevant, then you, what you're doing for them, then you're more likely to sell more, more to them. So that's why customer experience is so important. And Scale Your Sales Framework is really based on the key account management I do with Cranfield School of Management as a visiting fellow, the customer experience and the strategic sales, which is, includes the way we sell now, which is digital. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. In terms of um, the visiting fellow, is that on their MBA program or something else? Well, originally it started with key account management. So I um, did their open program and would be a consultant and work with larger companies, their clients, in order to do the consultancy and training. So it was more in-company projects. Now I'm working a lot more on kind of leadership um, management of the people that are on the MSc programs, but again, it's in company. The, w- one thing that's flabbergasted me, because I've worked with uh, academic institutions for the last 10, 15 years, the thing that always baffles me is how come they have marketing and finance in MBAs, but they don't generally have sales and HR, which are probably two of the most critical areas that uh, most MBA programs need, uh, and particularly if you're running a business. What is it about that? They had various electives. So when I did my executive MBA, you had the core program and the elective programs. And so you could select the ones that you wanted to do. And I did strategic HR, and that was quite a, a popular program. But you're absolutely right. Sales is never there. And actually, I'm constantly hanging on about, you know, like marketing. Why are we separating? Cranfield's doing a lot on on sales. They have, you know, they do all the sales leadership training, but it's separate to marketing. And, you know, I don't think, you know, in you were okay, so well, let, let's dig into that. Why yeah. is there this misalignment in academia and in so many businesses? between marketing, lead generation, sales, account growth and account management, customer success, and channel. Why are they not all aligned in one direction? And instead, they're all stovepiped. It does strike me as crazy, hideously inefficient, and it cannot possibly serve the customers well. Well, academic institutions, you have to think, who is the customer? The customer isn't necessarily the, you know, the same customer in business, the people that actually go on to further do further education. And I think that 
the way that academics develop their area of expertise is often niche and quite narrow. And so often you'll find in academic institutions, it follows that route. But you're absolutely right. There is a little bit of a disconnect. And I do think that they are improving their programs. And um, I think that more the more consultants and industry people that come in with the academic brilliant research that the the professors and academia does, the closer that all comes together, the better it will be. But the sales industry itself haven't been very good. You have the associations, but they really themselves haven't been very good at formalizing the education of salespeople. So we can actually kind of critique the educational institutions, but if the associations aren't doing it themselves, then the academic institution will probably see that there isn't a market. We should probably set up the Alignment Institute. Yeah. (laughs) But what would you call it? I mean, there's, you know, key account, sales, marketing. It would be a really long title. I think it would be something like customer alignment. If, If you're not aligned with the customer and you are not serving them, you don't build your products from the user and the customer up, you don't focus on being customer-centric, then essentially you're just another peddler of more tat. That's Um, absolutely right in sales. And that's why in in Scale Your Sales framework, I thought it was really important that the one side is all about the customer, customer experience, customer centricity. And then the deliverable side is the, the, the sales. And you do have associations uh, that focus solely on the customer experience, and they're very well developed and relatively new. On the side, the other end of that is sales that isn't aligned with that, and that's what you know. I wanted um, scale yourselves to speak to. I think another problem is that fusty old buggers like me are who came from the Gordon Gecko school of finance and yeah, Margaret Thatcher and that kind of ilk, have grown up with direct sales, new business. Then new technologies came along, and uh, they suddenly became focused by the shiny object syndrome. And so they've developed this technology spaghetti in sales and marketing, where you've got 15 different types of tech, MarTech and sales enablement and CRM and all this other gubbins. And what I'm seeing, which really hacks me off, is the dehumanization of the sales and marketing uh, journey. And as a result, people have prioritized efficiency over effectiveness and low cost per lead over the relationship. So if you had your shotgun and you were going to blast them with both barrels, what advice would you give leaders? Do you know, I think Gartner's got a really interesting statistic that 80% of companies' future revenue, now we know sales leaders and CEOs, they're focused, stakeholders focus on where the revenue is coming from. That's their key motivator. So 80% of companies' future revenue comes from 20% of your existing customers, future revenue from existing customers. And so that's the thing that I would get them to, I'm not sure if I'd have a shotgun, you know, I'm a bit kind of softer than that, you know, but that's the thing I get them to focus on really, your existing customers. These are the people that are going to give you the revenue, not only now, but in in the future. So what do we need to change in terms of the values of leaders? I think some leaders are changing, not necessarily in the sales space, but in terms of the CEOs of of organizations, and especially the kind of the the younger startup organizations as well, they are really focused on on the customer. The the innovative companies have to be totally focused on, on the customer. And that's how they're they're beating a lot of the larger companies because that's how they're starting their organizations by being focused and listening to, to the customers. So, you know, the more traditional larger organizations really are having to take note. And I think in terms of what I would say to, to leaders of organizations is that the people in your business are your biggest costs, but also your biggest assets. 
So they've got to be your biggest investment. So that's your your people. And I include people in your business as your customers as well. So, you know, they're the ones that can lose you money by not giving you money, really. So they've got to be considered the people in your business, along with the people you actually employ, your colleagues. And so that's where your focus has got to be. I'm going to build on that because there are a couple of really damning indictments of our profession. The first one is that last year, so pre-COVID, only 44% of people or salespeople hit their quota worldwide, which is the first time that it's plummeted below 50%. And this year, I suspect there are a fair number uh, that would, uh, wouldn't even make that. And only 13% of sales teams worldwide hit quota. Add to that, there was a report in October that Gartner uh, put out that said 30% of B2B buyers want a seller-free experience. And I saw on your website that Forrester said that 75% of B2B buyers want to self-educate rather than talk to salespeople. So what do we have to do as professional, and I use that term loosely, uh, professional salespeople to change our behavior? Because if it, if it happens once, it's a coincidence. Twice, it's a pattern. Three times, it's your fault. And it, this happens millions and millions of times a year. So what do we have to do in terms of shifting our values, our focus, our belief, our thinking, and most importantly, our behavior? Okay, well, take out the professional. You know, if you have to say you're professional, then you're not professional. And bring in the humanity, because we know sales is, is an emotional Thing. People, I think you had David on the other day, and you know, he talks a lot about sales is all about the emotions, and that's absolutely true. And so you need to take out the professional <laughs> and put in the humanity. And you're absolutely right. There's this huge uh, damning indictment against the sales profession, and they've they've buyers have moved on, and sellers are not moving fast enough. And that's why there is this massive disconnect between the two areas. And so what salespeople, what sales leaders, sales or the industry needs to do is forget about traditional sales, really, and really redesign the whole methodology. And it starts with, as you've said, it starts with focusing on the customer and the customer journey and actually looking at all of those different touch points, what you can do as an organization to enhance the experience for the customer. Because the customer is, is, um, is um, I was going to use the word targeted, but they, they're compelled to buy. Buyers are compelled to buy. The problem is, is the sales industry is not selling the way the buyers want to buy. So that's why they're circumventing it. So the thing is, because buyers are compelled to buy, all you need to do is change the way that you sell to meet the buyers where they are. So throw out the rule book and all of this methodology and systems that you have for a bit, because there's going to be some elements that you would want to retain and get out of your own head. It's not about you. It's all about the buyers and customers and really start to understand the nuances of your individual customers. The other thing that the sales industry does is that they have a system methodology and they apply it to everybody. And they don't, even if you have key customers, they don't personalize it nearly enough. But when we're on looking at things from a humanistic point of view, we know humans are individual, then we naturally do that. And that's why you need to focus on, on those key elements. I couldn't agree more that selling is an emotional activity. Buying, more importantly, is an emotional activity. And if you look at the physiology of the brain, the emotion centers and the decision-making centers are right next to one another. And if the emotion centers are damaged, people cannot make decisions. Now, if we're going to be more effective and uh, serve our customers better, and I use that word deliberately because service is not servitude. And we, we exist to serve the customer. That's why our companies exist. The byproduct is revenue and profit. Um, but you only make that if you are serving the customer. And 
I've interviewed a really fascinating chap. I think it's one of the freshest thinkers in sales around, a guy called Bob Mester. And he makes this point that customers only rent your solution for as long as it continues to deliver the outcomes that the customer needs. And Martin Lucas, who is the CEO and founder of Gap in the Matrix, has uh, this concept of uh, the digital butler. What most websites do is they make you scrabble around. They send you to the homepage. They make you go through this process where you give information to them before you get something back. So they're not serving the customer. They're having the customer serve you. And we have to flip that because as buyers, um, if we feel friction, we may go through the pain if we want it badly enough. But then people are buying in spite of how we sell, not because of it. And I think as sales people, we have to really modify our thinking. We have to put the customer at the heart of everything. Salesforce have very kindly decided to come onto my podcast to release their latest research on customer experience and employee experience on the 2nd of December. One of the ideas that they've uh, put forward is that we move away from pyramids into, into circles. So instead of having this hierarchy, what we have is the user at the center, then the customer organization around that, and then building out from there all the different layers that need to be influenced and need to be communicated with and so forth. And I think that's a much, much healthier approach because there what you're doing is you're focused on user centricity or customer centricity. But what you're also doing is you are spending your time and energy supporting them and getting their needs met. That's why people come to us. They don't come to us because they want our CRM system. They're looking for the outcomes and they're looking for those gains. What I'm really curious about is when you look at the best customer-centric organizations and when they're really building that customer experience framework, what are the qualities that they build into that so that the customer is actually listened to and they get their needs met consistently? Okay, so there was a lot to unpack there. Thank you for that. But focusing on that last, last question, the customer has a seat at the table. They are constantly bringing customers into their organization. They're constantly communicating and asking them questions. They're inventing and innovating products with their customer. They absolutely are focused on front, right, and center, having the customer at the table. And so at all levels, from senior management all the way through the business, they're really focused on, on uh, who and clear about who that customer is, what, why they're there, what the purpose of their, their business is all about the, the customer. So that has to be through all of their systems and processes, really in the way that they design, in the way that they deliver absolutely everything. So the thing that they, it's not just about the net promoter scores. I mean, that's just- Oh, well, that's complete drivel. It, it is, it, but it's more about a, a philosophy, you know, the mission of the business. That's what it is. It's completely ingrained in everything that they do. And there's a level of excitement around what they do because they're clear about who they're doing it for. We often love to do things for other people and we get a great deal of joy around that. If you can gear your organization around that really very basic human need to please other people, then you know you're changing it the whole culture of the organization and a lot of things then roll out from that are much um, simpler. The problem is often the culture of organizations are quite focused internally as opposed to being focused externally, but it's not focused externally on everything and anything. It's clearly focused on we know who our customer is and they'll probably have a narrow, a more niche type of customer because it's easier for them to get their handle on 
what they're delivering, why they're delivering it and what they need to do. So I think that's the most important thing, being very clear and being externally focused and very clear on who your customer is. Okay, now this raises another really important series of questions. So I'll I'll, uh, hit you with them one by one. Okay, most organizations, there is not one customer. You don't sell to companies, you sell to individuals. And inevitably, within a business, unless you are literally selling just to the owner or just to one person, there is normally multiple influences. There's normally three to four in companies below 200, according to SRC, in 2019, and uh, up to a 1,000 people or more, there are six to seven influences. Now, that, that's just influences. There may be other stakeholders. There may be a buying committee. There may be user buyers, technical buyers, uh, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, financial buyers, decision makers, authority and power figures, and you also have people with high, medium, and low impact on the deal. You have people who are allied to you or advocates. There are neutrals or unknown, and then there are enemies or advocates of your competition or people who see you as a threat. And there are all these moving parts. When people say they are our customer, um, and uh, when salespeople go after especially larger accounts, the lack of coverage is a huge problem. And what that does is it essentially turns every sale into basically a lottery. It's a crapshoot. I would agree with you. And, you know, uh, the Gartner's research said that the decision-making unit is now 14 to 23. And part of that is the COVID committee that you didn't mention that are completely risk-averse. And yes, salespeople have a narrow range of, of customers. You know, they have a relationship with someone one or two or three. And that's why key account management is is brilliant in that it identifies all of the list of people that you talked about. But there is this new element of the COVID committee. So what, what report was that? This is the Gartner's research, recent research around the decision-making unit, 14 to 23, because it now includes the COVID committee, the risk-averse COVID committee that's looking at the return on investment. They want to see the um, social uh, proof. They're looking at it in finer detail to ensure that it's completely impartial. They're completely risk-averse. They're killing a lot of deals. (laughs) And that's why it's really important for salespeople to ensure that they include these periphery people that can kill your deal. Well, this again points to something else as well, because what I've seen is if it's nice to have, then it's definitely going to that COVID committee. If it's must have, what I've seen is the decision making unit is much smaller uh, and uh, deals are getting done very quickly. So I had a client when I was uh, in the training business who was able to do an enterprise deal, so the big six-figure chunk, in three months from start to finish, from initial cold call through to actual sign-off and authorization. So interestingly enough, I think we have to, as sellers, understand where our real value lies. And this, again, will only come from speaking to customers, okay? And this is where I think a lot of people really get it wrong because marketing for some unknown reason, unfathomable reason, doesn't generally speak to customers. What the hell is that about? (laughs) I know, it's nuts, isn't it, really? Yeah, marketing's changed quite a lot, though, and I think that marketing, again, like sales, is kind of slow to catch up, and really there's a a bit of a quagmire on really what their role is. And I think that, again, if we start again with the customer experience, what experience do we want to give our customer? And then they're able to better understand how they're going to deliver that. But it's actually got to be marketing and sales are working together on that. And you often find that marketing wants to do their own thing, you know, and want to justify their own experience their own experience, nothing to do with what's needed in the company. And, you know, sales are really focused on the targets they need to deliver. Where does the customer come into this? Where does the customer come into this? I have a strong theory that everything should start in terms of our process, should start with customer experience at the heart of it. And then it builds out from there 
then moves into marketing, then it moves into sales, then it moves into the lead generate. Uh, sorry, into lead generation, then into sales, then into the account management team, and then back into marketing, and all the way through there needs to be that alignment. And what's also really interesting is the way people are compensated, because I don't believe that. Many of the people who are involved in the success of a sale are rewarded or recognized for their contribution. So a major challenge, I think, is looking at the compensation schemes and the recognition schemes that are in place in order to start recognizing everybody who contributed to the winning of the deal, but more importantly, into the customer adoption and utilization of the product their levels of satisfaction, their retention levels, and their repeat and um, expansion levels. And what that's a difficult task, and one that many CFOs, I suspect, would uh, go into mild palpitation, even at the thought of getting involved in. But if you want to drive behavior, then you've got to reward and compensate and measure the things that drive the outcome that you're looking for. And the outcome that sensible leaders, I think, should be looking for is customers who want to come back, bring their wealthy friends, and keep spending more and more money with you. But most compensation schemes and most reporting drives all the wrong behavior. Quarterly reporting, quarterly targets, um, being uh, driving the salespeople to be completely transactional. When I'm training my sales teams, because I, um, I run three at the moment, their focus is on winning a customer who will still be a customer five, 10 years down the road, not interested in them making their quota this quarter. But because of the way many organizations are set up, either because of investors or being public, they have to focus on that quarterly reporting. And I firmly believe that puts them at a massive competitive disadvantage against privately held bootstrapping businesses. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I completely agree with you. And just as you said, you know, was it um, 44% of people are hitting quota? There's something that's telling me the system is broken. It's not working. (laughs) And here's a left field one as well. How about salespeople being salaried like everyone else in the company? Because obviously, you know, the commission and the targets and everything is actually leading them in the wrong direction. So you can't say to salespeople, and I know someone, I'm going to get shot here, really. This is where the gun comes out. You can't really tell people to act in one way and you're remunerating them for something else. I mean, how does that work? It's ridiculous. And, you know, if you've got marketing people that are salaried and you've got customer success that are salaried and you've got all these other people in the business at salary. Why is it that sales isn't really? It is ridiculous system. It really is silly. And it's it's because we've always done it this way. So we're going to continue to do it. And also salespeople are going to complain and moan so much about it if we change the system. So we're going to keep the system. Again, how is that in the, the customer's interest? I'm with you, actually. I believe that There should be a variable element to compensation, but I also believe that uh, it should be down to the level of contribution. I think there should be a component around the team's success in the eyes of the customer. And again, but this, this is an absolute minefield. The amount of toys being thrown out of prams when you talk about this, it's kind of fun. And uh, it's certainly worth it just for the, uh, to feel Uh, like you've created some ructions. But, you know, compensation drives behavior. What you measure happens, what you don't doesn't. Um, And that lack of alignment is where I think we have to start. We have to start at the top where essentially, uh, I don't know if you ever saw that wonderful interview, uh, that skit that uh, Robin Williams did, where he was talking about getting someone with the as a middle name. So Lenny the Axe and whatever. And they need to bang some heads together to create a culture where we are about serving the customer long-term, where we are about creating genuine employee engagement at a massive level so that we get huge discretionary effort. Again, I'll, I'll touch on something else that I think will be near and dear to your heart. I interviewed possibly one of the best salespeople I have 
ever spoken to, uh, a lady called Caroline Pino. And the podcast is Meet the Impossible Saleswoman. And Caroline joined Splunk, her company, in January of this year, felt ill, went to the hospital, got diagnosed with bowel cancer. So she's been on chemo all year. In October, she was already at 300% of quota. And realistically, given how chemo knackers you, she could only work for about two hours a day. That's where her energy levels were. And she hasn't finished yet. There there were still two months left to go. So I expect it to come in around 330, 340% of quota. Now, what was interesting was her approach was to turn up to her new customers and say, I'm here to help. I want to understand what you're trying to achieve. And wherever I can help you, I will. And then she focused on service, absolutely serving the customer. The other thing she, uh, thing she did really well was really focusing, applying her high EQ to building human-to-human relationships internally within Splunk. Net result of that was she was able to generate massive discretionary effort from people who had no personal vested interest in helping her succeed. But they wanted to because she was a decent human being and she cared about them. And this then brings me to the next point, which is this is the first year, I think it was a McKinsey study, where female salespeople have now out, uh, as overall as a group, are outperforming male salespeople. And I think there is a shift which comes back to what you were talking about in the beginning. You have to listen and care. You have to treat people as human beings. You have to have real empathy with their situation. And you said it right at the the top of the call, which is that your customers are your best innovators. You learn so much. And listening is the transfer of meaning, but it's also the transfer of intent. And if you are not a fabulous listener and your questions come from what you have heard, so you feed off the responses, then I don't think you have a future in sales. You might survive as an order taker for a few years, but you will see your income decline. So in terms of the gender split, I'm really curious to see whether you've observed anything in terms of more women performing at the top of the leaderboard. And are you seeing a shift in terms of how salespeople are recruited and what they're recruited for so that they have more of that she psychology rather than the he psychology? Well, remember what we said, sales are emotions. Why does it surprise us and uh, that women are the best salespeople? It doesn't. (laughs) You know, and actually this McKinsey report, which is brilliant, I've known this for years. I've known this for years. And this is why on the Scale Your Sales podcast, I interview at least 50% women and, you know, a good 20% ethnic minorities because they don't have a voice. And the reason why we've missed this is that there's been very few women in the industry. I think for the last 30 or so years, it's about 17% of female sales leaders and perhaps only about 30% of women in the sales industry. But then if we... We know that they they beat targets. And there may be one woman traditionally in the business that's beating target. She's really not going to get flagged up because it's just, well, that's an anomaly, really. You know, that's kind of a rarity. But if you put it across each of the different companies around the world where they're they're beating their targets, and you, you know, that's why there wasn't that link up previously. So you know, I'm glad we've got this report, but it just proves something I've always known. And and logically, considering what sales really is about service, I'm, you know, it's it's easy to understand why. This is the DNA of women. They put everyone else first, you know, so they go into a sales situation wanting to, to ensure that you get what you want before I get what I want. Whereas actually the kind of male psychology, and we love our men, is the other way around. I've got to get what I want first before you get what you want. And that's why there is that difference. Over the last, yeah, about eight years, I've massively shifted in that direction. And certainly from my own experience, by not worrying about whether or not I make a sale, 
turning up with the deliberate intent of establishing, can I help? If I can, am I the best person to help? And genuinely not caring about the outcome, only caring about whether or not there is a really good fit for both sides and make sure that this plays to my strength so that I can deliver my best work to you. And my sales have been, you know, I've been successful in sales. My order values are very high. My retention, my referral rate is through the roof. I mean, I haven't prospected cold for, I don't know, 14 years, which I've got to be honest with you, is just blissful. But again, if you can get to that level, you have to then remember that people coming through in uh, the early stages of their career haven't built up that trust. They haven't built up that reputation. They haven't got that network. But it's important to get away from just sellotape the phone to someone's hand, have them stand up all day and dial for dollars uh, eight hours a day, really to focus your attention on the customer and work it out from there. And it's really interesting. When you listen to people like Alexine Mudoir, Gabrielle Blackwell, Lisa Palmer, Caroline Pino, these are exceptional salespeople. They listen their way into the sale. They don't talk their way out of it. Their questions are delivered with the deliberate intent, not only of understanding, but also making sure that they are putting the customer's interest before their own. And they care. It is a privilege to have spent time with them because when you recognize what that greatness looks like, and then you compare it with your own shitty, awful behavior in my early days, and I just look back and I think my life could have been so much better. Yeah, you're doing penance now, though, aren't you? I, well, I've, I've done my penance. Now, now I'm capitalizing on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's really, it, it's shocking how hard I had to work to get nowhere. You know, it's, it goes back to what we are saying. It's always been this way, you know, the sales system. And it's interesting what you say, you know, I call it active listening and questioning. Research by Gartner identified continuous customer improvement conversation increased account growth by 48% and increased the likelihood of maintaining the same amount of spend by 94%. So that active listening and communication has you know, an impact on the bottom line, which is really valuable. Well, this is where I see different, uh, a difference between the tech scale-ups that are absolutely killing it and the wheels aren't coming off because the, the companies that experience hypergrowth but then crash and burn don't follow that model. The ones that do follow that model Companies like UiPath, 100,000% revenue growth in seven years. I mean, just get your head around that. Yeah. Even if from a small start, that is a shitload of growth. Splunk, 200% compound growth over a five-year period to go from 42 million to 1.2 billion. Psychotic, 10 million to 500 million in five years. And they spend an inordinate amount of time talking to customers. Leadership do, executives do, management does, marketing does, salespeople do, the channel does. And all the way through the organization, that whole culture of listening is built into everything that they do. And paying attention to what customers are telling you, paying attention to what's not being said, the nuance is really key. I don't know if you've ever come across Amy Brown. Amy runs a company called Authentics, and all they do is listen to customer calls. I think it's about 10 billion calls a year um, that they listen to. And they uh, then use AI to analyze the calls, and then they play them to executives. So they hear what's good, but also what's not so good. I'm afraid um, I have a bit of a problem with this because I, I wrote a post about Gong as well. All right. And, uh, you know, or the kind of listening in. And you know what? We need to get away from robots because what happens when you do that analysis? It's like, well, you didn't mention this at two minutes in. You didn't do this and all of that. And you completely analyze the humanity out of these sales calls. And you might have the perfect model that can and enables you to sell perfectly. Where is the humanity in that? What about not having a script? And what about just 
listening to your customer and responding to what they say. So I do have a bit of, of problem with this these AI systems gone whatever. There's ways of using it, of course, in a positive way, but I just think it's moving so far away from humanity. When we get a new toy, we completely abuse it and we lose the whole sense of it. So I would kind of filter that with a warning. I'm with you as well. I think that if you speak to Mark Schaefer, who wrote fabulous books, Marketing Revolution, he talks about humanizing your marketing, but I think we have to humanize our sales. And you're absolutely right. I think what's happened is, uh, and human beings have a tendency to do this. We go from one extreme to the other. So no, we're not going to have people working from home. All of a sudden, because of COVID, everyone is. And now what we're talking about is, according to the uh, McKinsey report, you know, 73% of CEOs and CFOs we're looking at a way of having some form of work from home policy. 93% of people surveyed, uh, of employees surveyed, wanted to uh, continue working from home. Now, again, the, the danger is in the extremes. I think these technologies, well applied, are brilliant. Any great technology badly applied is worse than having none. But I'll take issue with something that you said, which is I, I think you do need to have systems and structure there because those frameworks... And that's what's important. You know, for the last 17 years, I've been teaching people the Sandler methodology, but I always taught it as a framework. And one of the most important rules in Sandler is literal versus reality. And if you saw how David Sandler actually sold, he had the framework, but often he would turn up and, you know, Dave Matson would uh, say he was surprised because David Sandler would just bring a suitcase of product into the conversation. And he would show people his stuff, which flies in the face of the orthodox version, which is you never present to sell. You only present for the kill. Um, but the reality is you've got to find Even the word th- kill. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that, that's that's just my macho message. Yeah, I know. But it's the words that they use. Yeah. Macho, campaign, hunter, kill, all of yeah. these. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, again, I, I think we've got to really understand human beings. And this is why... I partnered up with a company called Gap in the Matrix because the one question they were put on the planet to answer is why do human beings not understand other humans? And they're actually addressing that question beautifully. And and we're working on a couple of fascinating projects at the moment with my software clients. And we're looking at what it is that we as businesses are doing to prevent people from buying from us, identifying what we need to do in order to communicate with them in a way that they will say, ah, they help people like me and they deliver the outcomes that I'm looking for and to communicate uh, with them. And, you know, we're we're, um, two months into these projects and already we're seeing such a massive improvement in the quality of communication, in the quality of listening and being able to really very quickly identify what it is that we need to do differently. Martin was talking about one campaign that they were running with a jewelry company where they had a 986% higher than industry average click-through rate. They had something like, I think it was 72% conversion rate off an email campaign to their existing clients on Black Friday. Now, bear in mind, today is Black Friday. um, So there's the whole weekend to go. And they're already something like nearly 10 times higher sales than they um, than the previous year. Now, we've got to get really smart at this stuff. We have to listen and we've got to get ourselves out of the way of the customer and their reasons for buying. So, go on. No, go, uh, well, you know, there's a few things that you said that, you know, I wanted to pick up on. And, you know, systems, processes, we've got to have that. But it's only as good as what it's focused on, what's the deliver and what the outcome, which is you've mentioned before. So if it's focused on the customers, yeah. But if it's focused on being more efficient at our own systems, which it has been in the past, then, you know, that isn't going to really serve the the, um, the customer. Janice, that's the sacrifice of effectiveness for efficiency. And I'm absolutely against that. I'm not a big fan of efficiency for the sake of efficiency. And that's where I think we've gone horrifically wrong. 
Yeah. And, you know, like if the, the, the things I talk to my customers about are, are actually having hubs of specialties. So if you imagine you've got a key customer and every year you need to sit down and understand what are their needs going forward, how we can support them. But you'll have, you know, the marketing department that can perhaps add some data to that that they've discovered about the environmental analysis. You might have the technical or product or innovation team that brings something to the table. So you're internally focused on how you can deliver a better service, a better product to the customer, having already spoken to the customer, having them at, at the table. So actually the way that you, before you even go out and pick up the phone or do anything, you utilize the competencies within your organization and you might put together mutual action plan agreement with the customer, but it's very much focused with them in mind. That's the kind of methodologies that I want to see going forward rather than lead generation and all of the kind of funnels and all of these things, really. I focus on B2B and I focus on, you know, the top 20 customers because they are going to be your future revenue. So what are the systems and processes you need in order to serve them better, grow Growing them means that you grow your own business. So how do you organize yourselves internally to do that better? That's where the efficiencies come in, because if you do that bit better, then you're going to grow a lot faster because you're growing them a lot faster because you're listening because you have to listen, you know, to make sure that you're delivering the right things to them. I'd build on something that you said earlier, which is that it's continuous active communication. So under no circumstances do you do this once a year. This needs to be regular communication with your A clients. You should be speaking to them sometimes every day, sometimes three, four, five times a month, and then get together at least once a quarter so that you can hold each other to account. And the the philosophy that I have is that when we take on a customer, what we're actually doing is we're forming a partnership and partners help each other get better. They're not afraid to fight. They're not afraid to hold up the ugly mirror and say, well, hang on a second. This isn't working for us. You need to do better here. And you need to also have the vulnerability to ask for that negative feedback and the humility to accept it when you get it. And most importantly, to act on it. Because the NPS score and customer satisfaction surveys, total crock of shit, to be perfectly blunt. It takes 18 months for you to hear back from them, if you ever hear at all. I've just had my insurance sent to me by um, a, a, my previous insurer having cancelled the policy and they've now charged me yet again. So that type of inattentiveness, in spite of having cancelled and them confirming, so those internal systems are clearly broken within this particular organization. And that's because they're often very systematic as opposed to, here's a revelation, why not pick up the phone and just ask our customer? (laughs) Yeah, it's easier and cheaper just to send uh, letters and hope for uh, the buyer apathy. But I actually proactively contacted them, so I won't mention who they are uh, on this occasion, but if they don't uh, get something done, they may hear on social media. Janice, look, we've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this. What are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? Do you know what? I'm I'm running my business. I'm struggling with the same things that, you know, a lot of my customers are struggling with. Actually, getting the right customer, my right customer, and motivating them into action, really, the right type of action. But, and so I still have to work through the things that my customers work through in order to have the honor of supporting my, my um, customers. So it's the process that I use, the way that I engage customers and convincing them and providing social proof and all of these things is, you know, that's the thing that I'm constantly struggling with and, and, and honing um, because it's a moving feast and every customer is uniquely different and has a different makeup. So, you know, it's something I have to invest a lot of time in, but, you know, the customers that I do work with, it's, it's absolutely worthwhile. Okay. So tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Janice, age 23, 
what bit of advice would you give her that you know she'd have probably have ignored but would have uh, been beneficial to her? I wish that I had the confidence then that I have now. And I would say, ask for forgiveness, never ask for permission. Because especially as a woman, and especially as a black woman, the amount of personality that's knocked out of you, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, you you know, this isn't... I mean, at 15, I was told I was not intelligent enough to do A-levels. You know, I've got a Cranfield MBA. But a lot of those chip away at you. So you get to 23 and you, you know, have all of these nagging doubts and everything in your head. And I just wish I was a lot more ballsy as I am now. Sorry, kids, but, you know, I am. (laughs) Because I do not ask for permission anymore. I have a right. And, uh, you know, so I wish I knew that. I really do wish I knew that at 23. That was one of the best lessons I took from my time at Sandler, which is that you have rights. And one of those is that you have equal stature with your customers and your prospect. And uh, the other piece is that you will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. The moment I let go of all of that baggage, my performance improved, uh, my ability to serve improved. So I'm 100% behind you on that one. Excellent. If you could recommend two or three books, podcasts, videos uh, for people to watch, uh, especially around the stuff that we've been talking around today. Well, I would recommend mine and yours, Scale Yourselves and Inquista. Definitely. They're the only ones I would recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay, well, let's swiftly move on. Um, How can people get hold of you? Yes, Janice B, don't forget my B, Gordon. You put that in Google and everything comes up. I'm on the first, second, third, fourth, whatever um, page. Scaleyourselves.co.uk. Make sure you go to the middle of the homepage and you'll be able to do a quiz, customer X quiz, that helps you to boost your key client experiences, satisfy your buyer's needs and increase the sales revenue. You do that quiz and you'll get a a downloadable book which will be really useful to you. So go on to scaleyourselves.co.uk. Excellent. Janice, and also connect with me on LinkedIn, of course. Of course, absolutely. Janice B. Gordon, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you, Marcus. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure, likewise. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, you found it useful, then please do like, comment, share, and subscribe. And pop along to the Apple podcast site scroll down about a third of the page and then put an honest review. Five stars is fine. If you think it's worth one star, whack that on as well. I'm not precious. And please do uh, leave a review on there. It would be very helpful. And a quick thank you to all of you who've been supporting the podcast. As a result, we've now the fin- a finalist in the Top Sales World Best Sales Podcast 2020. So I really appreciate your support. And I'm looking forward to congratulating the winner. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.